Dotnet Rocks episode 616 with guests Chris Ald, Adrian Cole, and Jim Weber. Recorded live at Ordev in Malmo, Sweden, Wednesday, November 10th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Hi, welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's uh, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're at Ordev 2010 in Malmo, Sweden, on the stage with Chris Ald. The man with the shoes. The shoes, man. I got the yellow Crocs. Yeah. It's not cold enough for socks in Malmo yet. It's got to be minus 30 centigrade before we go to we socks. We actually go to socks. What are we go Crocs? Uh, I've never seen Crocs before. You've never seen Crocs before? No, I've been living in our, under Kyle, a rock. Kyle, you've got to get out You've you got to understand, me and fashion just do not exist <laughs> together. When That's I wake up in the morning, I look, at, Chris either. I, look at my, I look at my shirts in the morning. My number one criteria, does it fit? My number two criteria, how many stains does it have? You know, so I'm not a high fashion guy. So, so these are like rubber shoes with holes in them. They're fantastic, man. Like you can wear them everywhere. This pair of Crocs has traveled the world. It's been, been kayaking down the Zambezi River. It's been literally, it would have traveled they look, they hundreds look, of thousands of kilometers. They look like slippers, though. They, well, they're a little bit like slippers. On? That's kind of the beauty. How do they stay on? Well, they just sort of... Suction? Yeah, su- sort of suction. Your feet yeah. sort of swell in them. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dino oh. Rocks fashion tips. I'm yeah, so happy. Jeez. <laughs> you hit a new height. A I new think. low, perhaps. What have you been working on? What have I been working on? Doing less travel. Uh, no, so we've been working a bunch uh, with uh, Microsoft's uh, Azure platform. Uh, yeah. Is it Azure or Azure? Oh, well, see, that's a real point of contention. It used to be for me, it used to be Azure, right? Because right. I always think Cote d'Azur. And I always think I'd love to be in the south of France, Cote d'Azur, <laughs> beautiful yeah. French girls on the beach. But then I kind of got caught up in the whole Microsoft PR. Yeah. This is how you pronounce Azure. And they Azure. sent memos around everybody. It's Azure, Azure, Dude, Azure, I am totally Azure. schizophrenic. Sometimes it'll be <laughs> Azure. Sometimes it'll be Azure. Yeah. yeah. It's the cloud. Yeah. yeah. Go either way. Yeah, man. So you've got some apps up there in the, in the cloud working for you? Yeah, so we built some interesting apps. Um, built an app for a company called Ticket Direct, and actually the, the guy from Ticket Direct's just on the way to Hong Kong. Nice. Uh, that picked up the uh, IDC Asia Pacific Innovation Award. Uh, so he's up to Hong Kong to go and pick that up. Nice. Huh. Tomorrow. Oh. Uh, I'm here at Oradev. Yeah. Enjoying Malmo. Yeah. <laughs> um, Beautiful so, sunny weather here. And so that's really a canonical cloud app, right? Because if you think about the cloud, what does the cloud give us? It basically gives us unlimited computing capacity right. on tap. Buy it as you right. go. And you as much can, as you need. As much, as much as you need. Not only do you have to buy, not have to buy hardware, you don't have to hire people to run the exactly, hardware. Exactly, right? So yeah. if you think about ticketing, right, big, big, big event goes on sale. Sure. Maybe um, All Blacks versus South Africa, rugby, right? right. Now, that is a somewhat preordained result. Yeah. <laughs> Send the guy from New Zealand. Yeah. I bet. I can but, think of some South Africans that would disagree with you. But it's yeah. going to go on sale 9 o'clock in the morning, right. Tuesday next week. So, you, yeah. you know, all heck is going to break loose. It, it's, we're going to get slammed. Right. Right. Yeah. And of course, the issue is that we only get slammed a few times per year. Right. Yeah. So, we can't afford to have a slam worthy web farm sitting right. around. Yeah. Right. But you, you know, we used to always provision for the maximum. 
Right. Well, well no, to. actually, actually, you don't. I mean, you know, the ticketing companies, they can't afford to provision for the maximum. Right. So they provision for something in between, and come the best. ticket sales day, you either stay at home and hope for the best, or yeah. you take your sleeping bag and camp outside the box office right. and buy uh-huh. them in person. But Azure changes it. Well, literally, it changes it because we can, I mean, I can spin up an infinite amount of capacity for the day, because this stuff is cheap. Right. Yeah. right. I mean, I can, I can have 500 servers for the day. Yeah. doesn't make a whole lot of difference to me in terms of the overall cost to run the business right. because I'm only buying them for the day. And Even in fact, for a few hours, really. Well, yeah, we, we, need, them for, we need them for 20 minutes. Right. Yeah. right? That initial wave get everybody served and in fact if you serve that well the wave's even shorter exactly and, and the cool thing is that we get not only the web farm so we can scale up not only the web farm mm. but we actually scale up the database mm-hmm. all right so what yeah. we do is we say because because the database is key right because yep. we yep. want a transactional system you got all this no sequel crap that at right. the end of the day you know <laughs> it's eventually consistent and who knows if you're going to be sitting on somebody's lap at the rugby right, right. Yeah, okay we have a rule in ticketing it's like one <laughs> one ass per seat right <laughs> <laughs> More than one ask per seat. That's a problem. Went wrong. That's a yeah. problem. So yeah. we want it. We want a proper transactional, transactional database. database yeah. right. right. But of course, we're going to slam the crap out of that database. Sure. Right? Yeah. So what we do is we take the one database that usually sells the tickets, mm-hmm. right? And we say, okay, for this day, we're going to chop that up into a hundred databases. Right. And we'll have one database for sort of each area of seats in the stadium. Oh, okay. Nice. And then we'll sell tickets. And, and each we just... database only has certain seats in it. There's exactly. no overlap. Exactly, right? So, and, and, and actually, we only care about transactional consistency within the boundaries of the database. Right. Because we're not selling you... If you want to buy eight seats, we don't give you four here and four on the other side no. of the ground. Mm. We give you four, four seats together. Right. So we chop it up into a hundred databases, spread that load over a hundred database servers, and then when we're finished, we consolidate it back together. And, and that is just and the, is, the, the economics of this stuff. Can you do that built in out of the box with Azure? No. So, so at the That's moment, something you have to do. At the moment, we have to write code, but they announced at PDC that that feature is coming. So at the moment, the night before the game goes on sale, we turn the, effectively turn the sales off, chop the database up, turn it back on. Right. So wow. the SQL Azure guys, they've said, we, we, th- we know this partitioning stuff is the duck's nuts. Right. right? So we're actually going to support this, and we're going to support it so it's transactionally consistent the whole way through the operation. The whole wow. time. Oh, yeah. So you've got a database sitting there, and you go, partition this. Bam. And they spread it out into 50 databases, and it's transactionally consistent the whole way through. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> and then same thing the other way. Yeah. Now roll these up. Exactly. Roll this back up. And, and to me, probably SQL Azure is the most unique aspect of, of the Windows Azure platform. Right? Now, yeah. how do you know how many instances to provision? Well, that's hard, right? And that mm-hmm. is actually still a pain point with SQL Azure. Yep. It's actually kind of hard to do capacity planning. Right. We have a, a real luxury in the ticketing business. We only need to run them for a day. Right. You know when you're going to be bombed. Yeah. We know we're going to get, when we're going to be bombed. It is cheap, 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 cheap. Right. Yeah. So we just massively over-provision. You're over-provision. We just massively over-provision. So you don't worry about instrumentation, just knowing how many transactions you're going to serving, just the sense that a given instance is buried? I mean, that's of, that's of interest, right? But right. at the end of the day, we just, we just make sure we've got far more capacity than we're realistically right. going to need. Okay. What about on the website? Same basic set of rules? Well, the website's easy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the web, scale out on the web, we've been doing for donkey's years. Yes. Right? Yeah. What we haven't been doing for donkey's years is elastic scale out. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing that fascinates me is automated elasticity. Yeah. And once you're able to detect that my instances are buried and add more, you got and it. as the, they've got nothing to do, yeah. start rolling them back down. Problem with that, though, of course, is that somebody's going to take a hit if you don't do it before. Yeah, you I, know I, that it's a question of anticipation. And again, we're yeah. lucky in that we don't really need to anticipate. We know when we're going to get slammed. You know you're going to get bombed at 9 o'clock. So, 
Yeah, so what is this, this Azure box that I hear people talking about? So Microsoft have a thing coming called the Azure Appliance, and the Azure Appliance is basically Microsoft's Windows Azure Platform as a Service offering. So all this nice elastic stuff put into, you could call it a box, we don't know if it'll ship it as a box, it may well ship as a shipping container that you yeah. put on the back of the truck, right? That'd be yeah. kind of cool. But it's basically a bunch of servers all racked and ready to rock that you drop in yeah. that runs Azure. So you deploy your packages in just like Azure. Now is it connected to Azure if you want it to be connected to Azure? So we don't know yet what it's going to look like in terms of sort of burstability. So what yeah. you're kind of talking about there is a thing called cloud bursting. Right. And cloud yeah, bursting is yeah. interesting, right? Because cloud bursting is kind of, we run some stuff on premise, and most of the time we're peachy. Yep. And then the big event goes on sale, and we've got this big spike in load. So, how can we deal with that? Well, we'll actually burst into the cloud. So, we'll use some cloud resources for a period of time and then come back and use it only on premise resources. Mm. We're not sure whether we're going to land there yet, but if anybody's going to do cloud bursting, it's Microsoft who's going to do cloud bursting. This is what we started out with CDNs about, right? Was let's offload what work we can right. from our web servers onto other people's servers closer to their customers so that we get better performance and we offload our servers to some degree. But you always kept the transactional stuff to yourself. Yeah. So the idea of being able to dynamically push transactions to the cloud, right. dude, that's voodoo. So I think that's, that's, that's coming. You give us yeah. 24 months, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see true cloud burst. I mean, the, the, the CDN's interesting because Azure has a CDN. Yes. Right, so Azure has a CDN that effectively sits at the moment on top of their blob storage service. Yeah. But they just announced again, PDC, that that Azure CDN is going to sit on top of Windows Azure as well. So again, it's literally flick the switch on, suddenly you've got a 20-odd node CDN running yeah. in front of your server. So in terms of a really low barrier to entry for people building massive scale-out applications, this stuff's pretty clever. So I was sitting at dinner, at the speaker's dinner, with a, with a guy here that I just met, and uh, he said that his company is a little leery of trusting Microsoft to all of their data. So he asked me about this appliance, uh, and that's the first thing that came to mind. I couldn't really tell them all that much about it, but what do you say to those people who are like, you know, I really want to get in the cloud, but I can't make that leap of trust because, you know, if it goes down, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, so uh, is yeah. that appliance then the, the answer? I'm pretty, I'm pretty trusting in terms of reliability and in terms of security. Right. The place we have problems is what I call data sovereignty, right? And that yeah. is legal jurisdictions, privacy laws, right. competition laws, which agencies have jurisdiction, who can go and sneak and peek at my data. So that is a problem for a lot of orgs. So yeah, sure. the, the solution is the private cloud, right? And at the moment, most private clouds are virtualization and drag. Yeah, right? <laughs> because to me, a private cloud's not really interesting until we have a couple of key aspects, and these are often forgotten about. One is it's got to be really massive scale. When I talk about massive scale, I think your private cloud needs to be one order of magnitude larger than your largest elastic workload. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the biggest spike you're going to have have an order of magnitude bigger than that. More room than that. Then you've got a cloud. So to me, the interesting areas for pr true private clouds are people like government organisations. Yeah. Right. Where a sure. federal government can run a cloud and then make it available to government agencies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the second aspect for me that's interesting around private clouds is that has to have a pricing system. It has to have a market system. And ideally, and Microsoft don't do this quite yet, a market system with variable pricing. Based on demand. Based on demand, right? Because no. this is like the electricity network. Yeah, I, I want to get back to the term private cloud, because what does that mean? Does that mean that we have some sort of VPN on top of Azure that exists out there, or does that mean we are physically in control of no, our I own mean, hardware? No, I mean, traditionally, private cloud is 
the boxes are yours. Yes. They are where you put them. Now, that's probably on-premise, but that may be dropped on a concrete pad next to a hosting provider. And there could be many country. of them. And there could be many of them. Yeah. Right? But a private cloud is not just VMware. Right. right. right? That's what I'm getting at. A private cloud is you know, has those platform as a service, infrastructure as a service aspects. It has rapid on-demand consumption, yeah. user self-service. And importantly, it has a bloody pricing model. Right. Right? Because otherwise, so it's just Can you imagine that cost. this is essentially what Microsoft's talking about when they talk about their appliance? Because yeah. we are talking about a container load to be exactly. an appliance yeah. being yeah. owned by, a, say, a rack space. You got it. And then you're able to yeah. license it from yeah. them as your private cloud instance. Yeah. I mean, the, the place I see the appliance being really interesting, government organizations. Yes. Right? Yeah, very Government much. making available platform as a service because Windows Azure is far and away the leader in platform as a service, that yep. middle slice of sort of infrastructure as a service, platform yeah. as a service, software as a service. So government agencies buying this and then selling it, selling it to other government agencies. Right. Right? But the key is have a pricing model that's variable so that we start encouraging people to move their load like we do in the electricity network. Right. So if computing power is more expensive during the day and we have a pricing model that sends price signals into these agencies, they then move their load to off-peak hours. Yeah, what that if they're able to. Exactly, and right. it means that lowers the total amount of computing capacity we have to have deployed, and that is the key to green computing. The right. key to greener computing is yeah. actually a proper variable pricing system mm -hmm. like the electricity market to encourage sort of load shedding, load moving, yeah. all of those things that, that utilities have been doing for donkey's years. I'm yes. really interested in this appliance idea, um, as you can probably tell, because I keep coming back to it. Uh, one of the things that you get when you sign up for Azure is the people to maintain your, you know, your IT staff, essentially, which you don't get with, uh, with the private option. Yeah. So what's, so what's has, the story there? Again, the, the, the appliance is exactly how it's going to land. It's still a bit of a moving target. Right. There have been some discussions about Microsoft actually providing their staff to run the appliance for you remotely on-premise. Yeah, and if you get down to it, What's the difference between it being somewhere else? I mean, is it just a matter of CEOs just actually want to be able to open the door, lock the door, yeah. oh, and yeah. say, this is my physical stuff? There's absolutely yeah. some of that. I mean, again, I'm not, you know, private clouds, yeah. apart from really big users, I kind of Very, very but shaky they, area. Your CEO kind of likes to be able to walk down the hall and kick someone in the ass. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? exactly. <laughs> but, but the other side of this is the regulatory side. So. The, regu the regulatory side, yeah. to me, is the big challenge. Yeah. Right? That's what you need to be mindful of when you think about clouds. What are the regulations? What legal jurisdiction? applies, which courts are going to yeah. be able to have jurisdiction. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with physically where the appliances Physi yeah. are. <clears throat> yeah, physically where it is. Mm -hmm. Is it in the EU? Is it in my particular country? Yeah. yeah. Now, there, was, there crazy was a conversation I had with a guy that was dealing with privacy issues where the, the servers had to be in Luxembourg. Yeah. Well, let's face it, Microsoft's oh, yeah. not going to set up a data no. center in Luxembourg, <laughs> but if you've really got to have it, you yeah. can find yourself a concrete pad drop one of these uh, got containers down on it and you're off. But again, the beauty of Azure is that you've kind of got the, 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 the full software. spectrum, yeah. right? You've got, you've got the full public cloud, off you go, yep. and then you've got the full private cloud, completely self-contained, completely self-managed. Right. And of course, and that's good for Microsoft because they do as much selling your services now as they do selling you the gear, the gear well, and, and, and really maybe Windows not, Server. Yeah. Maybe not completely self-managed, but manageable. I think you will end up in a situation where it will able to be complete, completely yeah. self-managed. Oh, that's interesting. 
Well, Chris, thank you very much for uh, talking to us. It's My pleasure, guys. Shame you haven't been on the show before. Always We've got so much well, to talk well, about. So we'll do that sometime. I'm going to yeah, come and visit, visit Richard in Vancouver on the way to the ski field, and we'll, we'll have a proper catch-up on the economics of cloud computing sometime. Ah, absolutely. Excellent. Can't Great. wait for that. Thank you, Thanks, Chris. Guys. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. Hi, this is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're at ORDEV 2010. Howdy. Howdy. How are you? We're, we got a little, I wouldn't say this is a fishbowl, but it's a little stage. Yeah, it's a space. And you, uh, you spent a nice, uh, played for 40 minutes or so over lunch. It was yeah, very nice. Yeah, I brought my guitar and just played a little bit. But uh, anyway, we're here interviewing some speakers at Ordev, and uh, Adrian Cole is our, our guest. Welcome, Adrian. Howdy. Thanks. Hi. So uh, what's your specialty? Uh, I'd say integration, uh, systems automation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've been working on uh, cloud provisioning? Yeah. Um, early last year, I started an open source uh, library to deal with uh, compute cloud portability across things like Amazon's EC2 and other clouds like you know VMware's offerings and Rackspace. And um, it's called JClouds, and it's an open source library. It's on GitHub. So this is basically being able to write software to move uh, apps into the cloud and, and off to other clouds as necessary? Yeah, so the idea is, well, we have two, two phases. One is um, we have a portable storage API, mm -hmm. because as it turns out, um, how distant your application is from another component is important. Yeah. So if, if you have storage, uh, it, it helps a lot. Um, make sure everything's tightly bound where it, where it helps. And um, so we have things like a, a key value provider for Amazon's S3 and, and Azure's and all this, you know, all the other key value providers. Okay. And then on the compute provisioning side, we're basically making virtual machines exist. Um, we uh, support Amazon's EC2 and you know VMware's cloud and uh, Rackspace, uh, GoGrid, several others. Azure. As well? Well, Azure, in fact, uh, had a, a chat with the guys from Azure last week because they recently announced that they, they're giving like full access to the virtual machines in the right. Azure cloud. Okay. So as soon as that feature becomes public, we're going to work on it. Oh, but, great. but to date, it hasn't actually been finished yet. So, But let's stick with the storage side because this is very interesting. Yeah. So, uh, and we were just having a conversation about this whole idea of cloud bursting. So right. is yeah. this a scenario that's feasible that I can be running an app internally against my own data store and then use these provisioning uh, libraries to just move that off into, into a, a cloud implementation? It's an interesting question. So we've been um, basically had a lot of tooling recently um, about this thing called like vMotion where you would actually move a virtual machine from here to there. Right. Uh, these things are fairly heavyweight operations. Yep. VMs are big. Yeah, yeah they're big. And so what you find um, a lot of folks are working in now is, is like application mobility mm -hmm. where essentially it's in the, it's in the um, application layer. So maybe the code and the data related to a specific domain or partition would be moved instead of the entire VM. Right. So you could actually get get 
bursting of you know very uh, business relevant information. Like say if I'm a hotel booking, mm. um, I might want to increase the capacity to uh, this conference, mm-hmm. you know, which which only affects the local area, and could actually be data you know measured in megabytes, which could be very quickly bursted. You know, yeah, so you're talking about instead of. An entire VM, which includes all the OS code, you take everything which isn't the OS code, like the configuration for the OS, plus the application data, and all of those things, and that becomes what you move. Is that what you're saying, essentially? Well, I think what a lot of times people do um, is, you know, you can if you handle it all on middleware, then in fact you already have your application pieces running, mm-hmm. and then it's orchestration on top, you know, just like how we manage VMs on top of machines, you manage your beans or whatever your objects are inside of the middleware. Mm-hmm. That's one approach. Another approach is to, instead of move the VM, move the configuration to create the VM, right. which is a lot less weight. Right. Yeah. So, for example, and they're not mutually exclusive, because, for example, you may still need more middleware to mm-hmm. run your app, and yeah. so you will still need to create more space for right. it to run, like an overlay network in a way. And um, the faster way to do that often enough um, from a network bandwidth perspective is to move the configuration to create that VM. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing's free. So the complication there is that it takes time for this provisioning cycle, like install software, do these things. Sure. If the bytes are sent in a pre-installed format, it might boot faster. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you have to make decisions like this. Yeah, in- interesting challenge. But it, and I'm also fascinated the idea that you coming up with a provisioning library that works across these different disparate clouds. Yeah, yeah that's the value there. This is, um, so what happens is that we kind of free up this space so that people can innovate in this you know, application mobility space easier. So if you think about it, if, if I was writing you know, middleware, uh, you know, like for example, Cloudsoft Monterey, which does this like locale-based movement of data, well, it would be easier for them to not also have to deal with the operating system bits yeah. you know, and just focus on this layer. And you know, if you look at developers who uh, might be you know, Java or .NET focus or whatever, yep. they also tend to stay in a specific environment and care less about the operating system. Yeah. So if you can actually free that up and, and provide a space where people don't have to focus on it and still be able to consume 100 VMs, then you know you're getting out of their way, and they're letting you know them be be more agile, you yeah. know, about how they do operations. And uh, and I'd also just like the whole agnostic side of this: of we can run it over here, and if we're not happy with that, run it over here. Yeah. Mm. So so there's a lock-in, and yeah. the interesting thing about cloud computing is that it's not just a lock-in of software. We're used to that. We've had middleware lock-in discussions forever. Sure. Right. Platform lock-in discussions. You got it. <laughs> But now we're talking about service lock-in. Right. Because once you put your data someplace, you know, the more you put in there, it's harder and harder and harder to get it out. Yep. So um, sometimes, you know, what you might want to do is actually move your processing to a customer, you know, because their data is there and yep. it's faster to, and you're going to be provide better experience. Um, so, so I think that, you know, it does change the game to a certain degree where your architecture is, is sort of more data-bound than it used to be, not because it was never data bound, but because it's pretty severe going across WAN links. And sure. you know, if they're not yours, then you don't have control over them. Yeah. I, I got nothing. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's start. For folks who are interested in this, it's an open source project. Where can I find it? 
Yeah, uh, it's open source. Uh, there's a number of ways to, to get you know interested, collaborate, involve, or just consume. Um, for example, the source code is on GitHub. Right. Um, we have a lot of. Yeah, we we started off as a Google project, you know, on the Google Code site. So we have a lot of docs out there. Yep. Uh, we have uh, discussion groups on Google Groups for JClouds if you're a consumer, or JClouds Dev if you're interested in collaborating. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a, a wiki page of all the various apps and platforms that run on top of JClouds, and that's on our, our wiki site. So if you're interested in either commercial software or other open source projects that do things like, you know, middleware installation or, you know, unit test frameworks that help you test your code in the cloud, yeah. then you can find all sorts of information. Okay. Adrian, thanks so much for talking to us. Sure. Thanks. All right. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty free of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Hey, this is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're at OrDev 2010, uh, live in the Expo Hall right before dinner here on the first, uh, first day. Or is this the second day? Well, there were two days of pre-cons. It's the first, quote, first unquote, conference. real day. The conference first conference day, day Wednesday. Yeah, we've got two more to go. And we're sitting here with Jim Weber and Ian Robinson. Both of ThoughtWorks. ThoughtWorks guys. They're very uh, thoughtful. <laughs> Thought worky. And you were collaborated on a book? That's right. Uh, rest in practice. Rest in practice. Yep. Together with a uh, third collaborator, Savas Parastatidas. Close. <laughs> Savas Parastatidas at Microsoft was our, was our third collaborator. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Rest yeah. in practice. Because generally speaking, anytime I try and do any rest, I'm just told I did it wrong. That's not really restful, I think, is what they usually say. Yeah, it's just a way of putting people down and making them feel <laughs> insecure about themselves. So, yeah. But what you can do is just say, well, I've read the book. Yes, I've read the book. I'm restful. Yeah. Damn it. Absolutely. So if I have a system.net.web client object and I just put in a URL there and string together all my options, URL encode it, I can pull back data and it'll all be fine, right? I mean, is it any simpler, any simpler than that? It's not much simpler, no. Um, it, you know, when you're building a, a RESTful system, you take the web as your platform, yep. and you layer on top of that protocols which you express with hypermedia links or mm. forms, and you literally choreograph together uh, a set of interactions with resources using straightforward commodity libraries, using those links and forms to guide you through uh, a, a business protocol. Mm -hmm. So your client's trying to achieve a particular goal, and every time it does a, a get on something, it's looking for some clues. What can I do next? Where can I go? And we'll advertise some opportunities. Here's a link to something else you might be interested in. Here's a form that allows you to do something. And so on the fly, we're giving you, the client, the opportunity to work your way through the application and to realize something useful. I guess I'm saying, uh, as an implementation, as a .NET client implementing REST, uh, or using using tools to go to a RESTful service and, and pull back data. Do uh, would I use would I want to use a web client object, or are there other objects that make it more easy or complex? Or I I I, I like being on the middle. I'm a sockets guy. 
Right. So, you know, I like opening a socket, sending the HTTP, getting back everything and myself. I mean, you can strip out the HTTP headers. That's fine. So what, what other tools are there out there that make it e any easier than that? Well, I think you do need a good HTTP library. Mm -hmm. It's, you, know, you want to understand how does HTTP work and how can I take advantage of it as a client or as a, a, a server mm -hmm. so as to coordinate all of these interactions. And I right. think the first thing you want as a client developer is access to a lot of those HTTP idioms, to the headers, right. to the status code, so that you can make some decisions within the client logic right. as to what you want to do next. So that's, that's a fundamental part of building the client. But then you also need to be able to understand some of the, the formats that we're going to use to right. exchange these representations. So that's another little thing that you might need. What I get back is typically XML, is it not? Could or does be. it doesn't Could have be. to be? Um, so we, 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 we don't dislike XML for this. But yeah. um, remember, this isn't typically just XML. This will be some XML dialect for, for, a, for a properly RESTful system where you want to string together several interactions with resources, yeah. you need more than just XML. Yeah. You need some way of expressing those links and forms that will take you to those next steps. So although we may use angle brackets as a, as a useful way of packaging content, mm. actually using the content type application XML is indicative of a much simpler CRUD style service rather than a more expressive uh, RESTful service. You guys sound very language and platform agnostic, are you? We love everything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when we, when we started the book, we had in mind a target audience of people like us who'd, who'd worked with .NET or Java, building enterprise apps in the past. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was our target audience. And throughout the book, we've tried to, to illustrate a lot of the techniques using Java and .NET. Or so JavaScript, for that matter. Well, we're just not that cool. Yeah, we're not browser guys. Machine-to-machine <laughs> -machine interactions, and that's, that's as much fun as we're prepared okay. to have. Well, and you made a distinction between a CRUD app and a RESTful app. Uh, maybe we need to define that distinction more, because CRUD seems to be most of what we're doing. Sure, and, and the web is a perfectly viable platform for simple protocols like CRUD. Right. In fact, we get a lot of value from that, right? I mean, isn't OData essentially uh, CRUD I, over REST? Uh, I, so CRUD, I don't think, is REST in my world, but it's still useful. So I think about something like Amazon S3. Mm -hmm. It's a CRUD service. It uses the web to do valuable things. Yeah. Why it's not REST is because the protocol is so simple, it doesn't need the hypermedia aspect to be able to sequence together uh, you know, a number of interactions in a protocol. It, the protocol itself is trivial. It, it, it feels like you're, t say you're adding in this idea of almost a workflow right. to a CRUD app yeah. being more RESTful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what we're saying is that you know, all these interesting business behaviors emerge almost as a side effect of the client just manipulating resources in the same old, same old way. So actually, a lot of what it's doing with each individual resource looks very CRUD-like. Mm -hmm. mm. But the overall effect, because you're, you're leading the client by the nose, the overall effect is to, to execute a workflow. Right. Um, so each individual react, uh, interaction might look quite CRUD-like. But layering on some hypermedia, and you're beginning to lead the client. And are we having some conditional branching here or giving the, the user a choice of where they want to go next Absolutely. In, the, in the workflow? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, not arbitrary choice, right. but certainly as a client, if, if, you, if you've interacted with me, my response will contain a number of hypermedia controls and you might choose which one suits you best and follow that path. Okay. So uh, in, in REST in practice, we use coffee ordering. And you might do things like order a coffee and then add a speciality to it and then pay for it or cancel it 
if you're one of those annoying customers. Right. Um, or that eventually, right. you know, pay, and then you'll get your coffee. And we lead you at each stage. The server leads the client through that workflow by offering a set of legal choices right. at the end of each interaction. Yeah, so you could add cinnamon to your coffee, add chocolate to your mm. coffee. You yep. keep doing that yep. iteration as yep. well as, okay, I just want to now make my coffee and let me pay for it. Right. Seems like a matter of state and context. Uh, adding that to to rest to make it truly useful. Absolutely, yeah. and no, I don't, we you know we don't want to follow the the, the, the track of rest is this mysterious thing as it has right, been sure. presented. It's simple. It's very simple. It is. Right? It's cr it's a, it's a it's sequencing CRUD operations together using the web and HTTP. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is it is an important part of this pushing all the state you've sort of accumulated back to the client each time, or are you willing to hold stuff at the server? Well. The, the, the servers that are governing those resources, they're just interested in resource state. Right. You've got, I've got a whole bunch of resources, I manage all of those, and for each one I'm just interested in the resource state. You, the client, are responsible for maintaining the overall integrity of a sequence of, of requests. Okay. You know, so you, as the client, are really responsible for making of this an application, doing something useful with all of this. Mm -hmm. So yes, we are pushing a lot of state, application state concerns onto the client. Back to the client. And on the web, that's great because it's quite an expensive operation to maintain that conversational state. So why don't we just dump it on all of yeah, those? The more I can dump to the client, the less I have to depend on getting back to a certain server or any of those other conditions. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Hmm. And if we really need to, to transmit a piece of information that we might want at a later point in the future, we encode it, perhaps in a URI or perhaps in the body of a, of a response, and the client can use that to, to resubmit that information mm -hmm. later on and give us back our as much application state as we need on the server to do the next thing. Nice. And then the directionality of the workflow, this is all up to us as developers to make an option to say, take your cinnamon back out of your coffee. And we may not support that. Right. So in, in a coffee ordering protocol, once I've added cinnamon, if you tried to, tried to uh, invent an action, uh, manipulate a resource, uncinnamon, <laughs> uh, then we may actually reject that. And yep. the web gives us a bunch of standard status codes that we can use to indicate that rejection. Right. So you, you try to update the state of a resource, yeah. and I can say to you, you know, 409, conflict. Right. Yeah. The state of this resource is incompatible with the state change you're, you're trying to That's make. That's the great thing about, the, that about HTTP. All those codes are already defined. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, success and failure codes of different varieties. And they give us clues as to whether we should back off, recompute our state as clients, and then try and do some forward recovery or some backward recovery, mm -hmm. or whatever it is we want to do. And so just reusing that saves us a whole bunch of hassle versus when we're over, for example, in the web services world, and we tend to create proprietary protocols yeah, all yeah. the keep time defining to that do ourselves. the same thing. Yeah. So Jim, have you, have you guys been uh, presenting here? We have, um, yeah. We have. Uh, we were here yeah. on Monday. We ran a day-long tutorial. Then, okay. Um, and both of us have been presenting today. Uh, Jim's been talking about experience with previous clients, billion transactions a yeah. month, with systems that he's built. Um, and I've been exploring some more of the, the kind of workflow implications of, of REST. In Are these the kind of demos that you guys have been doing, these sort of uh, client-server demos, RESTful demos? Yeah, I mean, they... they I guess when you boil it down, they are you know, the the the, uh, the very core of the web is client server. Mm -hmm. But sure. um, at any point, any of those actors can be clients, and any of them can be servers. And yeah. typically, the lovely thing about the web is the composition problem that we have when we're dealing with uh, you know classic orchestration style WS style services goes mm. away yeah. because we have hypermedia. So that client servers relationship emerges really naturally yeah. from the web. Yeah breaking the problem up into lots of smaller problems that we can pick off individually 
and develop and test discreetly and individually. Right, and, yeah. the, and that, that linking could be to another server entirely, different servers exactly. entirely. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So uh, some of the stuff I was talking about today shows how we've, we've broken the application up and we host different parts of it in different different systems, but we can mm. still coordinate all of those interactions. We don't need some monolithic orchestration in the middle doing all of that on our behalf. This really, uh, this whole RESTful movement came as a sort of, uh, we've had enough of WS star com complexity, really, right? And it, but, it, it, but it does serve its purpose in terms of interoperability, right? But you know, when it comes right down to it, HTTP is pretty much a world standard, isn't it? Yeah, couldn't get more interoperable than that. Uh, yep. Everything understands HTTP, right? Yep. I mean, your, your wristwatch understands HTTP. Everything does. Um, right. And, and perhaps it's a bit unfortunate that the, 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 the rediscovery of the web and REST came as a backlash against WS Star. Yeah. I have, you know, in, in all fairness, I have very few axes to grind against that stack. No. Other than we went a bit crazy with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, for a, for a, for an. Uh, a language agnostic, a platform agnostic messaging uh, stack, it was yeah. okay. But then we baked in a whole bunch of other stuff which made it right. hard to use as a messaging system. Very hard. Uh, you know, the web and REST aren't necessarily lightweight and simple as the naive proponents would have us believe. To do robust distributed systems on the web, you have to understand the web. You can't excuse that. You can't right. hide it. You can't abstract it away. Right. You have to deal with distribution. But what the web gives you are the tools to deal with that distribution in a sensible, rational way. But status codes, verbs, headers, right. all those kind of HTTP idioms, and infrastructure, servers, proxies, caches, and so on to help you. <laughs> so the book is real REST? <laughs> I don't think I'm prepared to say that it's real rest. I think, uh, to be honest, we wanted to write a book about the way the web works and lots of practical, pragmatic solutions that people have adopted over the years to deliver good, robust software. Um, the fact that it has rest in practice as the, as the title, and right. we do focus on a lot of the, the rest constraints, that's good. But we're, we're, we're practical, pragmatic people, I think. Uh, published by O'Reilly. O'Reilly, and when will we be able to buy this lovely? You book? could already buy this. It's out. You guys in the U.S. had it before we we did in in Europe. Uh, that that <laughs> really upsets us because that's two, not fair. Two thirds of the book was written in the U.K. Yeah, and you guys only wrote one third. <laughs> and Jeez. we even put Z's in there for you. Uh, yeah. no Z's. <laughs> no Z's and no U's. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Jim and Ian, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank, thank you, guys. and good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.